ask you to bless this time as we look at your word and we ask for your spirit to guide and lead us and we just thank you that you love us enough to tell us what you want us to know and we thank you in Jesus name amen second Timothy chapter 1 starting at verse 11 Paul has been doing his introduction he's been declaring what's going what's going on and verse 11 says whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles for the which cause I also suffer these things nevertheless I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day hold fast the form of sound words which you have heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus that good things which were committed unto you keep and keep by the Holy Spirit which dwells in us so let's stop there for just a moment Paul is defending and this is the thing that Paul had to always defend he was a preacher and an apostle to the Gentiles now we in our day and age don't even realize what a big deal that was in the early church the early church was a Jewish church it was a sect of Judaism and the Jews as a whole and even back then they did not talk to Gentiles they did not convert Gentiles it was a tough deal for a Gentile to say I want to become a Jew they were grilled over the you know all kinds of things why do you want to become a Jew what you know what you know what do you think you're getting out of it and, and the rabbis taught that Gentiles were were born so that they could feed the fuels of hell the fires of hell that was what Jews were for uh, uh, Gentiles were for from their point of view Jesus always ministered to the Samaritans and the and the lowest people that the Jews did not particularly care for and then we remember that Peter saw the vision before Cornelius came to him and it got dropped down the sheet said take eat and it was full of all kinds of animals that they did not eat and Peter goes I can't eat an unclean thing I've never done it get done three times and God keeps telling him don't call what I have said is clean unclean and the next thing you know is Cornelius is knocking at his door and God says go with him all right he was the first one to go out and preach to Gentiles then you had Philip Philip was preaching in Samaria and God told him to go down to the wilderness and what did he meet an Ethiopian eunuch now it's questionable whether the Ethiopian eunuch was a Gentile or a Jew why would he have gone to Jerusalem to worship God if he was not a Jew but I'll give it whichever way he was still not a pure Jew by their standards then you have Paul and, and Paul is preaching all over the place to the Gentiles and they're watching these Gentiles get baptized in the Holy Spirit get all the gifts of the Spirit and be accepted by God and they don't know what to do with them and Paul is defending and has always defended God has called me to preach to the Gentiles now he did everywhere he went he always preached to the Jews first and if they had listened he would have stopped at the Jews only problem is they didn't listen they rejected the message and then he would go to the Gentiles now and over the years that what happened to the church was uh, especially around 400 AD when Rome said that Christianity was the uh, approved religion of the nation anti-semitism crept into the Christian church and Jews didn't want to have anything to do with Christianity because they were being persecuted in the name of Jesus 
And over the years, they have been persecuted over and over again under the name of, of uh, Christian, Christianity. Luther originally preached to the Jews, and they rejected the message, so he went anti-Semitic against them. And he was the one that led the, bound, the, the foundations of anti-Semitism in uh, Germany because German, Germany is a bastion of Lutheranism. So he had laid long before Hitler the foundation for anti-Semitism. And so we have this history that has been the church started Jewish, went way away from Judaism, and in our day and age is starting to swing back to accepting that we have Jewish roots. Now, the sad thing about that is as we get into our Jewish roots, people are getting back into legalism. <laughs> And all that goes, that, that goes with the Jewish religion because they're going, well, if we're going to go back to our Jewish roots, then we have to go all the way back and celebrate all the feasts and not, and not, do the, you know, not work on the Sabbath and follow all the 613 laws in the, in the Bible and then all the other ones that the Jews added on top of it. And this is the one thing you're going to see when you look at history and all of these things for Christianity you see these huge swings between both extremes. And for a very short time, they're in the center where they should be. And then they go swinging right past the center to the other extreme. And we see it in virtually every place, the difference between grace and law. We should be in the center where we say law is important and grace is important. But the church swings between the extremes. You go from very extreme legalism and it starts swinging all the way to everything is good because we're all under grace. It doesn't matter. God's rules don't mean anything at all. And we need to be somewhere in the center of all these massive swings. Uh, I've talked before. We've seen, we've seen it in the construction of churches. During the Catholic age, mostly during their age, built huge cathedrals, well decorated. And then they swung back and said, well, we're spending too much money on the, cathed uh, the cathedral, so now we're going to you know, build very austere places because we're going to use it to minister because that's what God wants. And we see it even in our day. And about a 40, 50 year span, you'll see great big cathedrals and great big beautiful churches being built. And then it, we just came out of an age where, you know, where everybody was doing storefront and home churches because you didn't want to put any money into, into churches because that was wasting God's money. And we have to have a middle ground where these things fall into. And Paul is saying, I'm appointed a preacher, which is somebody who is active in teaching and uh, giving out the gospel, an apostle, which is an ascent one. And then he goes, a teacher and a teacher of the Gentiles. So he's going through each of the three major aspects. So Paul is saying, I'm a preacher, apostle, and a teacher. Very few people today will be in all three positions. And most of the people that call themselves apostles are not apostles in today's world. I do believe there might be some, but not as many as say they are. But most people are preachers. Preachers tell a lot of information. They don't, they don't really do a lot of inter interaction. Teachers teach and answer questions and, and interact a lot more. I am basically a teacher. I preach Sunday morning, and the rest of the time I teach. Uh, and, but I am basically a teacher. 
And Paul says he was all three, and he was that to the Gentiles. And Paul wrote most, the largest percentage of the New Testament, and he wrote it to Gentile churches. So he's telling, he's telling this to Timothy. And then it says, for, that, for which cause I also suffer these things. Going back to the, the things that were before that, he was a prisoner, he was being, being beaten, all the things that he suffered. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. I love this. I am not ashamed. And it's kind of funny, if you've been around churches long enough, you'll, you'll see somebody making fun of it. They'll put Paul's resume together to hand to a pastoral committee. Chased out of town, beaten, uh, uh, been a murderer, all the stuff. And Paul would never be chosen to be a pastor of any church by today's standards because of his history of everything that would be bad, even though he's going, I'm not ashamed. Now, he could have been ashamed of being a murderer of Christians before that, but he also understood grace. He understood that God had forgiven him. Now, I'm sure he suffered from it. Don't get me wrong. He knew there were consequences to it. But he wasn't overly, he says, I'm not ashamed of all that I'm suffering. I'm not ashamed of being put into prison. And this is something that is very hard for people to understand. Working out of the prison, I've seen many inmates who have really turned their life around in, for God. Now, is it prison conversion? Some of them, I think, probably are. Some aren't. I've met a lot of them that you know, they will very clearly say going to prison was the best thing that ever happened to them because they really found God. And they had, and the best thing about prison is they've got nothing but time. You know, and this is the one thing I warn them. When you get out of prison, you're going to have a hard time because you're not going to be able to spend all day long reading the Bible, studying the Bible, talking to other people because you're going to have to go get a job. You're going to have to go through all these activities. Make sure that you're aware. And I think... Most of these prison, quote-unquote, prison conversions are more the fact that when they leave and get out into an unstructured environment and they have too much time, you know, too little time on their hand, God suffers. And it suffers for all of us. You know, when we have jobs and everything, it's hard to, to put enough time in studying. It seems like I'm either working or studying. And that's about all I ever do. You know, and, and I don't mind the study part. I would, if I could get rid of the work, that would be wonderful. I would love to just be pastor again, uh, maybe in a few years. When I get out of debt and, and all of that, I'll be able to just say back to just be pastor. Because this is my heart, to study God's word, to answer questions, to, to minister. And this is Paul saying, I, nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed against to him against that day. Why was he not ashamed? He says, I know. I know, and, and this word for know is to know, know by senses and experience. He says, I have watched God over and over be faithful. This wasn't just his knowledge of the Old Testament and all that God had done. That would have been a different type of word for know. But this one is, I know by experience. And I talked a little bit about that this morning. The difference between knowing what God has done in the past for others and knowing what he is doing today for me and those around me. 
And that's a totally different kind of knowledge. All right? Uh, most of us would say, well, I know about Abraham Lincoln. I know about George Washington. I believe that they were, you know, good presidents or whatever you might want to say about them, good military leaders whatever, for George Washington. But none of us really know by experience anything about them because none of us met them. And none of us have met anybody that did meet them. So all we have is book knowledge about them. But Paul in this statement, I know whom I have believed, is by experience. I know who I have believed. And then he says, I am persuaded. I hope that's our attitude about God. I am and you are persuaded that God is able to keep not just the things I've committed to him, but all things. And Paul is going to say, that which I have committed unto him against that day. And this word for committed is the idea of putting a deposit into the hands of a banker. And he's saying God is able to keep that deposit, and because he is there, nothing is going to happen. Now, that is quite a statement. Because if you put money in the bank, probably going to be there. But if you're old enough, you remember, you know, you can remember when the banks shut down and lost everything. Or you can remember, we're starting to get to where nobody does remember that day, but, you know, in America, the banks lost everything. And people lost all their money in the bank. And there was a time when people who did not trust banks because they had lost all their money in the bank. Right? We probably all know people of that age, you know, that uh, they, they lost everything, so they were not going to put money in a bank. And Paul said, I know whom I believe, and I know that I am persuaded that he is able to keep, guard that which I have committed unto him. Against the day of judgment. The future, the future day, death, judgment, the beam of seat. Because remember, Paul kept, kept everything he was looking at to what was coming in the, coming in the future. He wasn't really concerned with this world. Uh, the only reason he was concerned about this world was how many souls he could get into the next world. And you know, I think that needs to be our attitude more than we have in, in, in our day. Are we really concerned that what we do affects eternity? Or are we so busy living for today that we don't pay attention to eternity? And you'll hear it, that person is so heavenly minded they're of no earthly good. Well, the only problem with that statement is it's dead wrong. The more people are heavenly minded, the more good they're going to do in this world. The people that are earthly minded are the ones that don't do anything. Why? Because they're doing everything to work on temporal, valuable things and not into future. The Christian church changed the world. Orphanages started, hospitals started, uh, caring for the, the poor started through Christian work. And before Christianity started, if you were rich enough to hire a doctor, you got medical care. If not, you know, if you're strong enough, you live. If you're, if you're not, you die. Uh, you know, too many kids, you threw them out on the street. They lived, they lived. If they didn't, who cared? And that sounds harsh to us because we've grown up in a Christian environment. 
But in our day and age, we're seeing more and more move back to these attitudes. Uh, uh, abortion, euthanasia, life is not important, just end it when it costs money. Uh, we're seeing more and more children are a nuisance. Who wants children? Uh, how many children now are being raised by grandparents and great-grandparents because the child gets in the way or just thrown aside to somebody? Anybody go take care of the child, take them. I don't, I don't want them because they're in the way. Now, we're not quite bad enough to throw them in the street yet. But, again, Europe and America are only places that in the world where it is really normal to have orphanages and care for children. Why? Because even though we're fallen from Christianity, both still have a strong backing of Christianity. In the rest of the world, it's not uncommon to have your kids tossed out in the street because they're, you can't afford them or sold to, to uh, be servants or worse. Uh, and it's not uncommon for that to happen in most of the world. Women don't have a lot of rights in most of the world. And so we still see where Christianity hasn't held sway, the violence of a non-Christian viewpoint. And Paul is saying, I know who I've committed. I've committed my life to him. I've committed my life to train people to minister. And that was his whole goal. I've poured my life into people. And I love the verse where Paul says, I am torn between the two, the desire to go to heaven, which is better for me, and the desire to stay here and minister to you, which is better for you. And I understand that. As long as I can minister to people, I want to be here. Because the long term is maybe I can turn somebody into an evangelist, turn somebody into a teacher, and have a legacy that goes forward. And I think I do. I have many people I've taught over the years that I've watched them get strong. But the day that I'm not teaching, I want to go to heaven. Because there's no reason to be here at that point. If I cannot minister and pour into people's lives, I don't want to be here. Now, I don't have to be a pastor to do that. But I need to be pouring into people's lives or there's absolutely no reason to be here. And I get to talk to inmates a lot. You know, I'm not a pastor or a chaplain out there, but I get asked lots of questions. And I encourage them, and I have them make, I tell them they need to make godly decisions and look to, look to God. And every one of them know that I'm a Christian. And they know if they ask me a question, they're going to get more than they wanted for their answer. Uh, and some of them purposely ask the question so that I can talk in front of other people. It's kind of fun. Uh, but Paul was saying, I am persuaded, I am confident that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him. Are we persuaded that God is able to keep? Now, it's one thing to be shaking our heads, yes, I believe this. But, you know, I've noticed over the years how many Christians will say, I believe that God is going to take care of me for eternity and give me a beautiful home and, and feed me and take care of me and have no confidence in this lifetime that God is going to take care of them. I can't live that way. If God can't take care of me here, 
how do I know that he can take care of me in heaven? And Paul is saying, I am confident God has taken care of me. Now, he didn't have a perfect life. He didn't have great wealth and riches. But he said God had met every need that he had. And he was not worried that God was going to take care of him in the future. And this is, this is what you know, even the Truth Project keeps bringing out. Do we really believe what we believe? Or do we just say we believe it because that's what we're supposed to say in church? Or what we're supposed to say to other Christians? And Paul is saying, I know, I am persuaded that God is who he says he is. And that he has got everything under control. And how do we get this kind of persuasion? Well, the first part is to read God's word and to understand faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The more I am in God's word, the more faith I will have. And the more faith I will have, I will be putting into practice and watching what God does and seeing him act. And the more I see him act, that builds to my faith. And now, God, you've been good to me in the past. You'll be good to me in the future. And then when I go through a hard time where it doesn't seem like he's working, I can go, God, you've You've promised in your word that you're going to do it, and you've been practical for me all these years. I don't see how it's good right now, but I'm going to trust you anyway. And then he meets our needs at that time and builds our, builds our faith. And it's basically a snowball. The more faith we get, the stronger our faith gets, and the better we draw close to God. And it starts, I don't know if anybody's ever made a snowman, because not everybody here has lived in North Country. But you start out with this little tiny ball, and you roll it around in the snow for a while, and it's like, wait, I'm breaking my back rolling this snowball, and then the next thing you know, you've got this great big snowball, and you're breaking your back because it's too big to move. <laughs> and you do that again and put another snow, you know, put it on top, and that, that, that big ball starts taking on more and more, and that's the way our faith grows. starts out small, a faith of a mustard seed. And it gets bigger and bigger as we watch God meet our needs. We get more of his word into us. And it starts just growing. And hopefully we get to the place like some of these famous people in the books where we're just walking with God. Are we perfect? No. But we're just walking with God and we have so much trust in that he's going to meet our needs that we just act upon it. You know, and you know, I think about people like uh, J.C. Penney, uh, Sears. If you have read their history, those guys loved God so much that they kept 10% of their income and gave God 90 and trusted God to let them survive on 90 and they were millionaires. You know, I don't have that much trust to give God 90% yet. Now, I do give them a pretty good percentage, but I don't go to 90%. I don't have that much trust. Should I? Probably. You know. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, when you, that's what my point is. When they had 90, given God 90%, they still were millionaires, which means they were dealing with lots of money. But this didn't, they didn't have lots of money when they started this. They just trusted God. And I don't think they jumped from 10 to 90 overnight. They probably went 20%, 30%, 40%. And 50%, and I give a lot more money than I used to, and maybe someday I'll get to 80 or 90%. I don't know. My, I just want to go with God. When God says to increase my giving, I increase my giving. And 
my goal is always to give what he wants. Am I giving this high enough now that I sometimes look at it and say, God, do you really want me to give this much? I could use this, I could use this money and, and know that he hasn't told me not to, not to reduce it. Because I could get, oh, God, you know, you only ask for 10%, God. You know, I could drop it and, and get out of debt real quick. The you know, only problem is I probably wouldn't get out of debt real quick. God has a way of not allowing that to happen. But what is, what is it that we're doing? Are we fully committed to God? That he is able. And I love this. He is able to keep that which I have committed against that day. We have treasures in heaven. And even if, and I've said this several times, even if I got nothing in this world, I would have treasure in heaven and it would make it worth it. But God does give us treasures in this world so that we will be encouraged to keep moving forward for the treasures in heaven. And, you know, I've told people, you know, when I witness to people, I will tell them, you know, uh, what if you're wrong? You know, when they're telling me that when I die, I'm just going to be worm food, I won't cease, I'll cease to exist and all this stuff, what if you're wrong? If you use that question, be ready for them to ask you back, what if you're wrong? But I have a great answer for them. If I'm wrong and there is no afterlife, I have missed nothing in this lifetime. With all the blessings that God has given me in this lifetime, I have not been deprived. I have peace, joy, and God has given me my needs. Everything is there. So even if somehow it was all a lie and there's no afterlife, I have not missed out on anything. You know, and that, but because I've gotten everything God told me he'd give me, I know that he's true and I have absolute confidence of the eternal state. Now, can that be stripped down and sent to prison or whatever else at any moment? Absolutely. But does that tell me that God is still not in control? No, because I still have peace that passes understanding. I still have the love of God. And if they send me to prison, I'm going to be a pastor in prison. It's not going to be a problem to me. I can preach to the inmates that as an inmate. It wouldn't hurt my feelings at all. I'd probably get in trouble for getting groups of people and, be, and teaching them. So we'd be in trouble for grouping up. <laughs> you know, but what is our attitude toward God? Are we committed that he, that he is able to keep what we're giving him? And I hope that everybody that we talk to is that way. Then he goes on and says, now he starts talking to Timothy. Hold fast the form of sound words which you have heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Now this word for form is not good in, in, in the way it's translated. It is the pattern or the example that I have laid for you. All right? A good teacher should be laying an example and a pattern for how people should be behaving. Again, Paul's not saying I'm perfect. Do everything that I'm doing. He goes, but look at the good that I have done and follow me. I'm hoping that in more things than not that I am an example that people can follow. Now I know I'm not perfect. I don't want everybody to follow me in everything that I do. But when it comes to study and teaching and being an example, I try to be an example of loving and graciousness and all these things. I'm not perfect because I'm human. But I try to be loving and gracious more, more than not. And by those I want people to say, follow. Follow what you see. And this is Paul talking to Timothy. 
follow the example that has been set for you. And remember, Timothy was a young man, and he's been under Paul's tutelage up to this point. Now, many times, Paul has sent him out, saying, Timothy, I've got a problem over here. I need somebody that I can trust. You go over there, and then you come back and join me. And Timothy would be gone for six months to a, a year or two, and then come and find Paul wherever he went to. All right? And Titus was his other one that he had. You've got Timothy and Titus that he sent out when... When he needed somebody and he could not go, they were his go-to people. You guys go and take care of this church. And here he's telling Timothy, remember. Remember we've said when we started this book, this is the last epistle that Paul wrote that we have record of. All right? He is knowing that he is going to die soon. And his encouragement to Timothy is be strong. Be strong. Remember the example that I have set for you. I have not been able to be shut down by the, all these troubles and tribulations. I'm, I'm, I've taught people. I've gone through. And I've done the work of God. Do the same thing. Use me as your example is what he's saying. It says, the, the example of sound words, which you have heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Faith and love. You know, and this is very important for us. What do we put all of our trust in is the love of God and the faith that he gives us. Now, we cannot know everything absolutely 100% from the Bible. Now, we can be very intellectual, look at it, understand it, and be critical of it to a degree as long as we know that it's true <laughs> but we need to make sure we say why and God is not a is not opposed to us asking why because he is a God of logic he didn't just throw this earth together and say well there's no laws behind it can you imagine a world with no laws behind it I throw the ball and it might go up might go down depending on what what he wanted it to do that day might not go anywhere because the air all of a sudden got so thick I couldn't throw the ball in the first place. What a crazy world that would be. Do I eat food today or not? Because if I eat the food today, is it really going to make me give me nutrition, or do I go eat a brick? You know, and you know that sounds really stupid to us. But if there were no laws, no rules, we wouldn't know what to do and how to to live. God has made a perfect world with laws and regulations and nature that are just perfect for human life or life period. And, you know, he did all of this, and he's a logical God. He has all the logic out there. And just the idea of logic and information, our body is filled with information in the DNA. And we're just now starting to really understand DNA, supposedly. <laughs> uh, but... God put that information in from the very beginning. And, you know, that, there's one of the newest arguments for creation rather than evolution is that the DNA is a huge library of information. And you can't have information without a language. And you can't have a language without a creator. And it's very interesting because if you read a book, and all of us can read English, you know, it makes sense. If I give you 
a Russian book, it's probably not going to make any sense to you at all. It doesn't make any sense to me because I can't read Russian characters. If I give you a Greek book, which I have a couple of them in my office, for most of you, you would look at it and say, this does not mean anything to me. I can't even understand the words because even though it is a language, you don't have the information to decode that language. DNA is a language that the body understands and uses to replicate new cells. And it's an amazing thing that God has put out there. And it's becoming the newest nail in the coffin against evolution, that there is DNA, a programmed language to rebuild cells. And here we say, hold fast with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a very important statement when he talks about faith. How many times do we hear today that we are to have faith? We're to be people of faith. Or you hear the news, the people of faith don't believe this. Well, that's fine. I understand what they're saying on one side, but they're also using it incorrectly. What do we have faith in? All right? Everybody has faith. Everybody has faith. You can't live without faith. All of us walked in today, sat down on these metal folding chairs, and we had faith that that chair was going to hold us up. We got into our car. We had faith that we were going to get to the church, and we have faith that we're going to get home. Now, that one's a little questionable because there are a lot of dumb drivers on the road. We might not make it to any location. All right? Uh, we have faith that when we get up tomorrow morning, the sun is going to rise. Now, is there any guarantee that the sun will rise tomorrow? Eh, theoretically, yes. But the earth could, stop, could have such a major impact that it stopped moving. All right? Now, chances are very low. But we have faith that certain things are going to happen. And we need to understand that the faith that we have is in Christ Jesus. Not in faith. I don't have faith in faith. I don't have faith in people. People are going to let me down, always. But my faith needs to be in Christ Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. He is the one that I want my faith to be in. And this is important for us, that we aim at that faith. And again, faith comes by the word of God. The more I know God's word, the more I can have faith in God, because the more I'm going to see how faithful he is, and the more I will understand him. And, the, you know, we did talk about this the other day, that, you know, as I get to know God, to some degree, my truth will evolve as I get to know God. Because I start with a child's faith. All right? Uh, very simple. One plus one is two. I got it. All right? They get older, they start teaching us, well, one times one is one. Why? Why, when I change that sign, does it become, you know, one instead of two? And then they eventually will teach us that I can square the number. Like, whoa, hold it here. <laughs> then I get to learn trigonometry and calculus and all these other things that all take the beginnings and grow upon. And we've talked about this often. God teaches me that I need to love one other people. 
and he's very nice to me when I first learn about love. He gives me somebody who's easy to love. It's, it's nice loving them. They love me back. Those first ones. Then as I start learning how to love, he starts, okay, now we're going to make it a little more interesting. This person's going to be a little harder to love. The next one's going to be a little harder to Then eventually he says, I'm going to give you somebody that is almost impossible to love without me. And he's going to be doing what Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to those that despitefully use you. Now that's a real easy assignment, isn't it? God, that person's mean to me. They don't even like me. They're purposely trying to hurt me, and you're telling me I have to love them. And his answer is yes. And who is the example of that? God and Jesus. Jesus came to this world so they could go to the cross and be brutally executed because of our sin. And the Father allowed it. And we're going, God, I I don't have that kind of love. And he's probably saying, yes, I understand you don't have that kind of love. This is my love. And, you know, it's an amazing thing when we look at God and say, God, how much do you love? Now, is there an end of his patience? Yes, there is an end of patience. We've seen this over and over in the Jewish people. But his patience did not completely end. He never destroyed all of the Jews. He never destroyed all of mankind. When he sent the flood, he took Noah and his family and saved eight people. That's a pretty big devastation, especially when you look at it and there was millions if not billions or trillions of people around the world before the flood. And then at the end of time, he will not destroy all of mankind at the tribulation period. Now, lots of people are going to die. just in, the, just in what we know in Revelation, 60 to 66% of the population is going to die. When you take the half here, a quarter here, a, a third here, and you add them all up with probability, you find out that about, six, about two-thirds of the people are going to die. It's a pretty hefty price for sin. But still God has mercy and says, I'm not going to destroy everybody. My mercy and my grace is going to reign. God loves humanity. Why? I have no idea. I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me. Because none of us, even in this room, are, doing, are good enough for God to love us outside of his grace and his mercy. And we're fairly good compared to most people. But it, we still aren't good enough to be loved by God. And yet he loves us. And he loves all of humanity. Even the ones that are going to reject him and his sacrifice, he loves. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. All of them. Not just the ones that accept him, but all of humanity Jesus was given for. Now, not all of them are going to be saved because they have to make the choice to accept that gift. Because it goes on that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life but God gave his life for the sins of the world and this is something that's important and and this is what Paul is telling Timothy the faith in Jesus Christ that good thing which was committed unto you keep by the Holy Spirit which dwells in us 
Corinthians. What was committed unto him? Right in the beginning. Paul's message. Paul's example. It is very important for every one of us as a Christian to have somebody that is our discipler that will pour into our lives truth and sometimes correction and change of direction. And this is what Paul has done with Timothy on more than one occasion. He says, keep what has been committed to you. This example. This example. We all need that person in our lives that say, this is the one that is my discipler. I was very fortunate when I was growing up. I got saved before my dad, but my dad very quickly became my discipler. He had just a few years of learning and ability to study over me. And he got motivated very quickly into God. He was kind of like Paul. As soon as he got saved, he read one book, the Bible. And that's all he did for the first year and a half, studied the Bible outside of going to work. And he learned God's word. And he was able to disciple me. And then I was already hungry. I was already doing correspondence Bible courses and all this stuff anyway. But he became my discipler. I was going out with him. He would go out on Saturday to knock on doors, and I was there. I was there knocking, you know, with him everywhere he went. When he taught pastors to be pastors, I was with him on many of their occasions, listening, being discipled, hearing everything he, that was being said and how they were being trained. Do we, do, who do we have in our life that is that person for us? that we say, this is the person that I will go to for questions. I, I still, to this day, have a couple people that I go to for questions. Now, most of them don't want to hear my questions anymore because they're challenging to them, and I don't have a lot of them. But you have to have somebody that says, I need some answers. I need somebody to at least talk it through with me. And then the secondary thing on this, because Paul is going to tell Timothy, find men that can teach men. We need to be taking what we learn and pouring it into others as well. Because we need the next generation to be strong in the, in the church. Because we're only one generation from not having a church. And if we're not teaching others to believe God's word and being examples to them, it could end. No, I'm not saying that it's going to because God's going to have a remnant. He's going to have somebody teaching others. But if we really want a strong, vibrant church, we need to be pouring out what we learn to others. And this is important. Who do we pour out to? Who do we minister to? And sometimes it's, you know, I'm going to tell you, sometimes you feel like you're losing the battle with people. And when I pour out and I pour out and nothing seems to be changing in their life. All right. I had a prodigal son in my, in my house. We were pouring into him, and he said he kept making bad decisions. Very bad decisions. Finally came back to God. And, but poured into him all of his younger years. And I've heard it from all but one of my children has said, I never realized how much we learned by growing up in, in your house. Because you know, now when they say th things in Bible studies, when they say things in groups, people are listening to them. And they're going, and all I'm doing is telling you what we always talked about. It was normal in our family to do these kind of discussions. And I hope all of you realize it's normal for me to talk about 
these things. Answer questions. Bring up, bring up God. Uh, and I love after the men's breakfast that people will stay and talk. After some Bible studies, people will stay and talk. They stay and talk and ask questions. I love that portion of the discipleship. Taking things beyond just what we're saying and saying this is how it's applied. This is what we do with it. Because if it's all words, it's all knowledge, it's dead. It really is dead. If it's not coming out the paper into my life and coming back out, there's no value in it. It's got to come out. I've got to reach out and love people. I've got to encourage people to get into the word and praise God and worship God and pray and all the things that are involved in the Christian life. And this is very important for us to, who do we reach out to? It can be friends, it can be family, it can be your niece and nephew and grandchildren, it doesn't really matter, but who is it that is poured out? Now some of us are better teachers than others, don't get me wrong, I understand that. Uh, Jesus ministered to 12 men, plus another five or 600 people around them. But he poured his life into 12, and even of those 12, he had three that he personally said, you are the three that I'm really gonna pour into. Why? Because there's only so many people you can pour into. So some of us may, some of us that are listening to me may have just one person that they're able to pour into and minister to. Some may be able to do three or four or more. Just be able to respond who to God gives you and just encourage. Encourage them to read the scriptures. Encourage them to ask questions. Seek answers. And if they ask you a question that's way too tough for you, say, that's a good question. I'm going to go find the answer and go find the answer. You go to your disciple and say, how do I answer this question? uh, And follow through with that. You know, it's a lot of fun to be able to just let God minister to people. At least I find it fun. But, you know, and and I get encouraged when I watch people in our church that are growing so much in God that they're able to answer questions, they're able to initiate conversations. And what's really funny is when they do it without knowing that they're doing it. Because it becomes so much part of them that they just live it. And that is what we're looking for, that we live Christianity. We are just loving. We are just kind because that is who we have become. We answer with Bible because that is what we're becoming, people who know our Bible. And people ask us questions, and we just answer it. And the more we know about the Bible, the more sensitive we get to the lies of the world and say, well, I'm not going to believe this lie because... And I've noticed it in my life. The longer I walk with God, the more I know his word, the more I'm sensitive to all the lies around me. Now, can I get out there and attack every lie out there and make everybody not want to? No. But I know the lies. I know the counterfeits that are out there. And Satan has a ton of counterfeits for everything. And, you know, this is something that people don't seem to understand. There is a truth, and it is counterfeited. Satan is not counterfeiting counterfeits. That would be insane. And we've said this many times, nobody is going to counterfeit a $3 bill. There's no such thing. Here, Mr. Grocer, let me give you a $3 bill to pay my my tab. And they're going to go, no, I'm not interested in a $3 bill. No, then take my $7 bill. (laughs) No, I'm not interested in a $7 bill. (laughs) 
Satan counterfeits the truth. And this is what needs to be understood. And this is the thing the Truth Project brings out. For every truth that God gives us, Satan, who is the father of lies, dreams up a lot of lies against that truth. So God says, through Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And there's all kinds of religions that are built up on do more good than bad and you're okay. Well, by the way, you don't do anything because nobody's... There is no afterlife. Oh, by the way, do whatever you want because you get to keep getting reincarnated until you get it right. Oh, that doesn't work. Okay, let's do it. There are so many lies out there to try to bring people through other lies. And we need to be very careful, you know, how we even deal with those lies. Because our job is to teach the truth, explain the truth. And we can explain the truth without attacking We can explain the truth without saying you're wrong even. Because you know what? The Holy Spirit is the one that's going to change their heart anyway. You know, they're they're going to tell me, well, I just believe that I can do all, you know, do more good than bad. And I hope my good outweighs my bad or however they phrase it. I'm going, well, I'm just going to tell you, God says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Well, I don't believe that. It doesn't matter to me what they believe. You know. Doesn't matter to me, they don't believe, believe the Bible. How am I going to witness to them? I'm going to quote them Bible verses. They go, Well, I don't believe that. I go, I understand, but let me give you another one. <laughs> I'll walk them right down the Romans road. Well, I don't believe any of that. I go, I understand. Here's, here's another Bible verse. I told you I don't believe any. I, I understand, but here's another Bible verse. You know, why do I do that? Because God says, My word does not return to void. It doesn't matter what they believe. Truth gets stuck in people's heads and the Holy Spirit will have something to work on. If I'm trying to out-debate them or prove that they're they're false and all of this, it's not going to work. This was my problem with many places that study the cults and try to try to argue people out of their cults. It doesn't do any good. Because as soon as you get done talking to them, their leaders come along and, and answer all of your questions and all of your objections. Preach and teach truth. And let the Holy Spirit work on their heart. Because that's all that can matter. And when people are always studying the cults and everything, the bad news is they get infected by that, by that thought process. Uh, Walter Martin, before he died, got so critical of the church as well as the cults because he was so building into this whole critical mentality that he was judging churches. And I don't know where he found in the Bible that he was supposed to judge Christian churches and, and their pastors, but he was judging this church, that church, and you know, it's like, this is crazy. Now he wrote a great book, The Kingdom of the Cults. He understood cults very well. His, his uh, disciple Hannity has gone worse than he ever did in judging churches. You know, now, was the book he wrote good? Yes, if you want to know about the cults, he wrote a very good book. And what have I told you all about it? If you're going to study the cults, you're going to study false religions, I have no problem with that. But spend at least as much time in the Bible as you spend into the, to the lies. At least. And I would even say give twice as much time to the Bible as you did to the, to the lies. Because it usually takes more of the truth to erase the lies. All right? 
Do I know a lot about cults? Yes, not because I've studied them, but because I've been a Christian so long that I have dealt with people and they've told me what they believe and I am able to express what is true. And this is the whole thing. We are committed. God has committed something to us and it is to be kept by the Holy Spirit. All right? Not by my strength. If it has to be by my strength, I'm in trouble. Same thing for everybody in my voice, but I'm going to use me. If I'm trying to keep things by my strength, I'm in trouble. And I am somebody that perseveres very hard because I do not give up very easy. But if I still had to keep the truth of God by my own strength, it's going to fail. At some point, it's going to fail. But the Holy Spirit in me keeps it forward, keeps it strong. And that is where my whole hope is. My hope is in God keeping it. My hope is in the strength that God comes in. And this is the good news. When we are saved, Jesus comes into our life. He gives us the Holy Spirit to come into our life. And the Father comes into our life. Our, our body gets, a, our spirit has a, quite a big boost in there. It's very, very full. But that is where our strength comes in because God changes us from the inside out. And the more I turn my life over to him in surrender, the more he comes out. And this is what the beauty of it is. And this is where as we grow in Christ, we should become more and more like God. We're never going to be perfect, but we should be able to look back. And I've said this several times. If we look back on our life, how different are we from a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, a decade ago, how far you want to go back? If you're not seeing that difference, then you're really going to have to look and say, God, do I truly believe in you? And are you changing me from the inside out because you're inside me? Because if you're not changing there's a problem. And we need that change. Why do I teach God's word so much? Because I'm listening to everybody get back and saying, the teaching is changing. My heart is changing because of it. We're in his word. The Holy Spirit is working and people's lives are being changed. Not by me. Don't, you know, I just give the word. But, but the Holy Spirit ministering with his word and strengthening people as they learn to trust him. I don't want anybody trusting me. You'd be in trouble trusting me. You know, that would be a terrible move. We want to trust God whom I'm teaching about. We want to trust his word that I teach about and not me. Don't ever, I don't want anybody saying I'm following, I'm following uh, Ralph Wells. That's, that would be scary. I don't want anybody following me. Now, to a degree, maybe. To the degree that I teach God and in revealing love, then yes, I would be. But if you're going, I'm just following him, Cults do that. I don't want that. I want people following the Jesus in me. I want them following the word of God and seeking after God in all that they do. Trust God. Put your confidence in him. Because I have seen people, and believe me, I've seen it over the years where there's a good pastor in a church. And I'm not saying that the pastor was bad necessarily, but people start trusting the pastor and seeking the pastor more than they're seeking God. And they end up being clones of the pastor. Now, that may or may not be good, depending on how the pastor deals with it. And you are going to say, well, this is what that pastor does, so I'm going to be, I'm going to be like him in certain ways. 
and you will hear them say the words of that pastor. I listen to CSN, which has a lot of Calvary Chapel pastors on it. And I can know the ones that were directly influenced by Chuck Smith because I hear his words coming out of their mouth. Is that bad or good? Yeah. Most of what Chuck Smith taught was good, so it's not that big a deal. But I sometimes wonder, are they just repeating words or do they have a full heart attitude that he had when he taught those words? And I grew up in the church on the East Coast, which was the equivalent of them, and people did the same thing. They mimicked and, and copied that pastor. And good and bad. You know, I saw some good, where they were good pastors, they believed in what they were teaching, and I saw some bad ones that were just being mimics. And I'm sure that's true of Calvary Chapel as well, that some were just mimics, and that there are good ones. Where are we with God? We're to copy good, but not so that we forget who we're following. Always remember that we follow Christ, and our goal is to honor Him. But, and I've said this, you know, we're a Southern Baptist church by the name on the, on the door. And that's fine. I have no problem with that at this present time. If the Southern Baptists go crazy, then we'll leave the Southern Baptists. It's not going to hurt me. Why? Because I am a Christian first. I believe God's word. And if the denomination leaves God's word, I'm going to preach the Bible. It doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter to me what the name is on the door. We're just going to teach God's, God, God's word, at least while I'm here. We're going to teach God's word and his word only. And this is what's important for us. Do we truly believe his word no matter what? And this is what Paul was encouraging Timothy to do and to work on. And we are out of time. <laughs> Lord, we ask you to bless the rest of this day. Keep us safe as we're going about our business this week and protect us. Lord, we ask you to guide and keep us. Bless us with all the craziness that's going on in our world as judgment is starting to fall on, this, on our country and on the world as a whole. And we ask you to be with us in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please today make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.